This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9, good morning, I'm Keith Calm. Recently, BFM spoke with Fitch Ratings about its bleak outlook for the world economy next year, where it forecasts that Europe and the US are likely to experience a recession. With the threat of stagflation running high and central banks aggressively hiking rates, global financial markets have never seen more uncertainty. The same goes for the Islamic finance space, where Sukuk's or Islamic bonds are integral for raising funds and managing liquidity in accordance with Sharia principles. Joining me on The Breakfast Grill this morning to discuss the outlook for Sukuk's as well as opportunities for new ones that are ESG-linked is Bashar Al-Natur, Global Head of Islamic Finance at Fitch Ratings. 2020 and 2021 uh, was a tumultuous time for global financial markets. Lockdowns had virtually crippled economic activity and worldwide governments were forced to come up with pandemic relief benefits. How did all this affect the Islamic finance space? That That's an interesting perspective. I mean, although you look back at two years, but they're a bit different. Mm-hmm. Uh, because 2020, when the pandemic hit, the actual impact of that was similar to other countries where uh, Islamic finance is active. So if you look at the GCC, if you look at Malaysia, Indonesia, Turkey, Pakistan, and the wider group, there was similarity in terms of the way that the lockdowns, the actual economic reaction yeah. in general. And that, at that time, you were looking at low oil prices. And why am I mentioning and and singling out oil prices? Because it is linked to the oil exporters segment of the Islamic finance world. And that means when you're looking at at usually at the lower oil prices for that segment, oil exporters, they would require more funding. And then you look at the oil importers. Which is a good thing for them. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And and that is something that is panning out on on their aspect. The banking system, so the Islamic banks were in a similar condition to the conventional banks in majority of these countries. They were impacted by the same things. However, exposure sometimes to real estate, because some markets are more exposed to real estate, had its a bigger toll on these banks in some other cases because you have retail depositors that was helpful to the Islamic banks more than to conventional. But in general, we've seen the growth of Islamic banks, even if it was little, it was higher than the conventional in most of these markets. On the Sukuk side, the funding needs at these times when the oil prices were actually down have increased. Many sovereigns, many financial institutions and corporates came to the market and the market was moving despite all of that lockdown and what you've seen. We've also seen reactions from various governments in the world towards how the pandemic is affecting its populace. What was the reaction like from the Gulf states in terms of making money easier to borrow, for example? I, I think it's not it's not unique to many of these countries or Islamic finance. It was similar to the conventional side of things. But I think one example maybe that many of the CEOs of Islamic banks were happy about at that time is if you recall that the government asked banks to take it easy on customers and deal with delinquency and not charge interest during these tough times. Islamic banks were already by design, they cannot charge delinquency interest or even if they charge delinquency interest, it will go to charity. So the system and I would say the culture within Islamic banks was already used to that, where in the conventional side that was not there. So that is, I think, one unique aspect of it. But in general, 
I mean, you did not have uh, significant differences. The only differences is if you are an oil exporter and you are having the ability to do more, that is something that will translate in on the ground compared to less able, I would say, countries with Islamic banking sectors. I wonder if you could help me understand this as well. Um, because one of the tenets of uh, Islam is that there be no riba interest. How is that rationalized with the fact that during the pandemic and even up till now, central banks around the world, the Federal Reserve, the ECB, the Bank of England, they play with interest rates up mm. and down. How do these two different types of financing coexist? Okay, Islamic finance by nature, as you correctly said, it's forbids riba, which means interest is forbidden. So at the end of the day, you are looking at a system that does not or supposedly not dealing with interest. You have what is called asset-based or an activity-based that will result in financing. So what usually happens is you'll have an underlying activity or an underlying asset that creates the profit that the bank can charge. For example, if you have a murabaha, which is uh, selling something, and then you'll add a margin to it, and that margin, the profit, is what the bank is going to take in the comparable, although that's Sharia compliant, that's not, of interest. Now, you will tell me, okay, so it's totally disconnected? No, because actually the Islamic banks are competing with the conventional banks. So the actual pricing, so the actual margin, the actual profit, is not very far from the actual interest rate prevailing in that market. So it is used as a benchmark rather than the underlying principle for charging. So you will not see usually significant differences between an Islamic bank's financing and a conventional loan interest. The, the what differentiates are the things that are being invested in. Exactly, the underlying, exactly. So the underlying contract, and I think this is the gist of the story, the underlying contract is Sharia compliant in an Islamic bank, where the underlying contract in a conventional bank is an actual loan, which does not qualify as Sharia compliant. You did talk about the link between oil prices and sukuk issuances earlier. In 2020, we did not really see a significant drop compared to the decline that we saw in conventional bonds. This also came at a time when crude oil prices declined sharply. What does it tell us about its resilience? I don't know if it's resilience, but I would say it's dynamics. Because at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. It was not impacted. But Mm. why? Because you have a lot of oil exporters that came to the market to fund the funding gap in their balance sheet as governments. And that's important because at the end of the day, you are looking at a market where you have a majority of oil exporters. So when oil is low, that usually translates to more or less a funding gap. Mm -hmm. And that needs to be financed. And usually Sukuk is one of the key alternatives, around 30% of the funding in these countries, it will come to the Sukuk market. Thus, you will see that helping the actual growth of the sukuk market when that's down. But now, if we look at that in 2022, when oil prices are high, the story is different. But again, the sukuk market is still having its unique performance. Yeah, but could the fact that the Islamic bond market is also smaller, that you don't see these movements as starkly? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely smaller. But at the end of the day, when I look at the sukuk market, I look at the sukuk market and the bond market in these countries. So I don't look at sukuk in isolation. Okay. I would say, okay, in the top 10 Islamic countries, the bond grew or decreased declined by that much and the sukuk grew and declined by that much. Now, being niche or being smaller has definitely positives and negatives. The positive is you have a dedicated Islamic investor, which is mainly in in the GCC country Islamic banks, that are sitting on liquidity 
and that will create a supply-demand imbalance, i.e. the actual supply of Sukuk is less than the actual demand because you have banks that have liquidity and they need to invest that in Sukuk where the actual issuance is less. And if you go to the bigger picture, if you look at the bond market in these countries, then you will add to the dimension of international investor and the appetite of international investor to emerging markets. Now, the international investor and the appetite to emerging markets varies, as you know, with the interest rates, inflation, which at that time it was low. So the markets were attractive and the investors were happy to look at issuance, whether it's a bond or sukuk, if they are happy with the credit story and buy it from these markets. Because at that time, if you recall, the interest rates were low. But the fact that the major issuers are the oil and gas industry, would that skew the market a little bit more than, you know, if it had been a more diverse market? It's, I think, 70-30. Yeah. So 70% of the market is oil exported and 30% is oil imported. In the oil importers, you have the likes of Indonesia, you have Turkey, you have Pakistan, for example. And in the other side, you have countries like GCC countries. And of course, Malaysia is, uh, is part it, yeah. yes, part of that pocket. So as you correctly said, if it's a pure oil story, you would be 100% right. But there is another dimension. Many of these countries, GCC oil exporting countries, embarked on a diversification of funding plan in 2016 onwards. That's something relatively new. Many of these countries did not issue bond or sukuk before. Right. So that's a new dynamic that is even in times like these times where we have oil prices up, many of these countries are still issuing because they are now having target to actually be present in the debt capital market to not be absent in the debt capital market, to develop their debt capital market, not only on the sovereign, not only on foreign currency, but also in local currency, foreign currency, and for corporate and financial institutions. So that driver, despite oil prices being high or low, i.e. the actual need for funding, is still there. And it is supportive of the market. So definitely, if you have a bigger market, which could actually expand over the medium to long term, that's definitely better. But currently... Oil is a big factor, but we are seeing it becoming, I would say, it's still important, but... Less so. Less so, exactly, because there is an actual diversification push from the oil exporters. On The Breakfast Grill this morning, we have Basha Al-Natur, Global Head of Islamic Finance at Fitch Ratings. On the other side of the break, let's find out how the drive towards more ESG-centric investments plays into the Islamic financial sector, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by UMOB. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9, you're still on the Breakfast Grill and we are talking to Fitch Ratings Global Head of Islamic Finance, Basha Al-Natur. We just want to get into what we are seeing today, the current market conditions, high volatility, high interest rates, high oil prices and uh, what's happening in Ukraine. Your outlook for the sukuk and bond market activity is that it will be slow going forward because of rising interest rates and all these other events. There will be also lower emerging market debt appetite, what kind of slowdown are you expecting? The slowdown is, is mainly on the short term. What, As, what short term in this? I.e. 2020, how is the 2022 is going right. to perform? And maybe it could trickle down to the beginning of the following year or so. As you correctly said, uncertainty and volatility is definitely not a friend to the bond market in general, and Sukuk is no different. But the actual fundamental is you have issuers and investors. In the issuer side, you have oil exporters or importers with high oil prices because of that volatility to add to the inflation, higher inflation, higher interest rate. With higher oil prices, we said that could actually remove the new funding needs for our exporters or many of the oil exporters. But there is an actual funding diversification 
education push. And that is supportive. There is on the issuer side, and I'm here, we're talking about sovereigns now. Yes. There is an actual maturities that is coming and that's going to support also issuance. And on the importer side, you're creating a bigger funding need. And that is definitely coming to the market. We've seen countries like Turkey coming twice in, in, in this year. And we expect that trend to continue on both sides of the equation. And here we're talking about sovereigns, financial institutions and Islamic financial institutions, and even some conventional ones. In many of these countries that historically deposit funded are now trying to diversify also their funding. When there was a low interest environment, they were opportunistic. Now they're trying to buffer their cap- capital and liquidity and funding by issuing sukuk and bonds. So that side of the story is also developing. And that is also supportive of the medium to long term right. side. And corporates is following because they're trying to diversify. And the On, investor side. And the investor side. The investor side, I will split them into two. The Islamic investor, which is Islamic banks. And because of the higher oil prices, because of the actual volatility that's happening in Russia, the oil exporters are having more reserves than funding. Not in full, but they're making their way to the banking sector. Which means that the banking sector and the biggest investor in Sukuk, which is Islamic banks, still have an intact liquidity. That's very important because the actual liquidity in the global scene is tightening. And where you have an investor that still have liquidity. So that means you have intact demand coming from your Islamic investor. If I look at the international investor, there is a different story. The appetite to emerging market because of the increase of the interest rates, yeah. because of the volatility is weakening. But historically, that is expected to continue. The biggest investor continues to be the Islamic banks and that side of the equation continues to be intact also. And you did say that the Sukuk pipeline was developing behind the scenes and it's just waiting for the right market conditions. What are you seeing as evidence of this? We've seen just in this quarter, the last quarter, we've seen Turkey coming, we've seen the Islamic Development Bank coming, we've seen Saudi Arabia coming. It's evidence that is actually hitting the ground. This is where we say there is a pipeline that is building. The ones that can actually afford waiting for the right opportunities are waiting. What are these right market opportunities? This, this right market conditions? Uh, it, it depends on the right for their mind. It's the right time to come to the market, the right pricing for them, the right investor pool that they're attracting, the right conditions in general. So it varies from one issuer to another. But not all issuers have that luxury. So the luxury of waiting mm-hmm. is for the ones that have the ability to wait. Some of them need to come to the market. We need to address the fact that the US dollar is at the strongest that we've ever seen in a long time, if not ever. And a third of Sukuk issuances, at least in 2020, were in US dollars. How does the current strength of the dollar play into sentiment going forward? A very interesting question. Countries with dollar peg yeah. and countries without a dollar peg. And there is the GCC, more or less, with the exception of Kuwait having a basket, they are pegged to the US dollar. So the act actual exposure to risk to US dollar is not there because your currency is already picked. And that is easing that side of the equation for these countries. Mm. Countries that are not picked to the US dollar, of course, they are exposed to FX risks. And then that is something that is being managed like for bonds or Sukuk in the same way when it comes to sovereigns. Definitely the appetite and the ability of corporates, for example, to manage such a risk is much more limited. And unless you have a significant cash flow coming in in foreign currency, then you have a big mismatch risk that you need to worry about. And that is an issue in bonds and Sukuk, it could be actually more in Sukuk because the availability of instruments to hedge is more limited. But they're not the biggest segment. The biggest segment is actually sovereigns and you have also banks and banks, they have the flexibility also to manage that side of it. Where does ESG Sukuks play in this? Because currently it only makes up about 2.6 of the total Sukuk market. That's almost a drop in the ocean, right? Yes, absolutely. It's small in the global picture where you're looking at long-term, medium-term and, and local currency. But if you look at our rated portfolio, for example, 
example, it's more than 10%. Okay. So that side of the equation, i.e. our rated portfolio is around uh, 160 issuances, which is around 133 billion US dollar as of Q3. So it's a big part of that, specifically if you look at the our currency one, and it's growing. It's been growing steadily in the past few years, even with the pandemic, even with some volatilities, that trend is continuing to grow. Yes, it's small in the grand scheme of things, but that basket of two point something percent is everything in because there is an actual drive behind it. But the main issues are Indonesia and Malaysia, not so much the OIC countries. Why is that? Okay. Um, OIC countries, they're not issuing a lot of bonds, let alone Sukuk and ESG. Okay. Uh, so definitely Indonesia was the first government to issue a green Sukuk. Uh, Malaysia has its own uh, initiatives, whether uh, recently on the sovereign side and before even Indonesia on the corporate side of things. But you have also issuers coming from the GCC. So you have banks and you have corporates that also ventured in the ESG universe. You have airlines that went there. You have mall operators. You have utility companies. So it's not something that is, uh, I would say, exclusive to Indonesia and Malaysia. We're seeing that developing on the other side of the uh, Asian continent, which is the Middle East. It's developing there because of two things. First of all, many issuers are trying to attract a wider investor base. They are issuing uh, Sukuk because they want to have, in addition to the conventional investor, they want to have the Islamic investor. The trend that we've seen in many of these countries and around maybe 80% of issuance that is ESG related in the top 10 countries, when they approached the ESG market, it came in a Sukuk format, not in a bond format. So they said, okay, we already have the uh, Islamic investors. Why don't we attract the ESG sensitive investor globally and add an ESG layer to it? Mm -hmm. The driver is to attract a wider investor base. But there is another story also developing on the other side. Many of these governments started to realize that ESG is an actual need, not good to have. Uh, we've done a study last year. For, we've studied 114 countries. And, and when it comes to drought and extreme temperature, five of the GCC countries are in the top 10. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's a need. It's a, Exactly. Yeah, it's but, an actual need. But I, I, I can't help but think that Indonesia and Malaysia being the largest ESG so-called issuers, they are also the two largest palm oil producers in the world. Are there dangers that there might be greenwashing? And the GCC is no difference. The GCC, many of them are all exporters too. Yeah. But there is another thing that even before many of these governments, I would say recently, started putting and installing sustainability goals and sustainability strategies, they were trying to diversify away from oil. So they've already started, not because of AEG, but at that time they said, okay, we're very dependent on oil. Let's diversify our economy. And that is something that started at that time. So this is something that they're already putting in their agenda to reduce. So I would say it came with a lapping impact when the ESG strategies came say, okay, we want to diversify our funding and we want to also deal with the ESG-related one and look at alternatives. Now, Malaysia wants to be the global leader. We house the largest number of active ESG sukuk globally with 175 out of 192 active ESG sukuk instruments around this time. Most of it's denominated in ringgit. Yes. What impact, if any, would this have on the ringgit? The number that you cited is number of sukuk. But if you look at the value, the actual Malaysian share becomes a little bit less. Malaysia started very early when it comes to sustainable social or responsible financing. This is why you see a bigger number when it comes to that. So it is, I would say it is something that has been there. There is an actual push now 
from various stakeholders. So I've been discussing in this visit with regulators, with bankers, with issuers, and the key message that's coming, okay, we want to capitalize more on Islamic finance and Sukuk and see how we can do more sustainable related issues on it. So I think that push is not going to disappear. It might increase if you have the right, uh, I would say, frameworks and available projects that investors can actually go and fund and invest in. What sort of infrastructure does Malaysia need to be champions of Sukuk issuances across the board? When we say Sukuk issuance in Malaysia, the story of Malaysia has been local market, local currency, local linkage. And that is something that, although Although it's an advantage when you have less appetite from the international emerging market, but also it has a limitation on the size of that market. So if you're talking about local ringgit, you are talking about mostly local investors and local issuers. Mm -hmm. So the actual size of that Sukuk market is to the dimension of it, yes, it's going to grow. I mean, Sukuk is is around 60% of issuances in the local market, but it's not going to explode. Exactly. Where if you're looking at the bigger potential, which is Malaysia is almost absent in, which is the hard currency, US dollar one, that is open-ended because you're talking about a bigger universe. So I would say the potential is there, there is dynamics, but it's not going to explode, I think, the term that you've used. I mean, um, going further from what you said, there doesn't seem to be any sort of standardization across the different jurisdictions, right? There are different interpretations of what ESG, suku is, what's Sharia compliant and all that. If you could just help me understand what challenges are there in making suku a globalized asset? Ah, that's a question. If you asked me the same question 15 years, I would have the same. Yeah, it's it's been a limiting factor on the Sukuk and Islamic finance industry, not only Sukuk, even banks industry. There has been initiatives. You have some, you have actual bodies like the IFSB, which is domiciled in Malaysia. You have uh, IOFI, you have other institutions that are trying to do standardization, putting guidelines. But the actual implementation and the take of that to standardize is really limited. I would say Malaysia, again, has a unique status because they started early. You have a standardized and most evolved frameworks compared to other Islamic markets when it comes to Skook. In other markets, you could have an an actual bank. In, In one financing, you have one conventional tranche and then two Islamic tranches because in the same country, one Islamic bank says this is Sharia compliant and the other says it's not. And I'm talking about the same country. So that issue is definitely is there. And this is because of the diversity of opinions of scholars. I think that issue has been there. It's to a large extent being solved in Malaysia. Some countries like the UAE introduced uh, centralized Sharia boards on a local level. But in general, the actual objective is to have a more standardized, at least within a country. And once we achieve local standardization, which we are just at the beginning, I mean, you have few countries that I'm citing, Kuwait starting, other countries are starting, you will look at the regional standardization and then international standardization. So I would say we're very far from solving that problem of actual standardization and the issue of saying, okay, this is acceptable here and not acceptable there, I think will gonna, is going to be with us for some time. Basha Al-Natu, Global Head of Islamic Finance at Fitch Ratings, thank you so much for coming in. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And this has been The Breakfast Grill. I'm Keith Kam for BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.